Hello, and welcome back to our next episode of Asp and Answered. Today, Megan, Katie, and I are so excited to be interviewing Dr. Tara Scanlon, the ninth president of ASP, who served her presidential term from 1994 to 1995. Tara is now retired and has the title of research professor at UCLA in Southern California. Tara, thank you so much for joining us today, making time to be with us today. We can't wait to learn from you and, and hear your insights. I'm totally honored. Thank you so much. Well, I know I gave a very, very brief introduction, but let's start off with you giving us a 30-second elevator pitch about where you are now and the work that you're doing right now. We'll talk about how you got there in a second, but just give the listeners a little bit of an insight about the work that you're doing currently. What I've sort of devoted my professional time to um, uh, as a research professor is um, to the Passionate People Project. And uh, I run a lab of unbelievable undergraduates. It actually started when I was still teaching and then we just kept it going and these kids are amazing. Um, they all have 9.3 grade point averages <laughs> and they run the university. <laughs> So um, it, that is just a pleasure. It's like the greatest teaching experience I've ever had. And the Passionate People Project really evolved from, from students, seniors, every like December, January coming up to me and saying, can I speak to you? And so I knew what it was going to be. And they would say, I don't know what I want to do yet but I'd like to be passionate about what I do. How do you find a career like that? And I thought, so I would try to, you know, allay their fears to some level and whatever. And then finally I thought, you know, we can do this. And based on our research here over the years where we really looked at the positive emotion of fun and children's world and enjoyment, passion in the adult world, uh, with youth sport through world-class athletes. We've learned a lot about that. I thought, you know, we can, we can set something up to make this happen. And so this is really, and what I'm so excited about is it's, you know, we all do translational research in sports psych. You talk to parents, magazines, you, you know, you do whatever, but this is sort of taking that whole body of work, including the commitment work we've done, and applying it as the foundation to the Passionate People Projects project. Um, and um, it, you hear passion everywhere, right? It's everywhere, it's everywhere. And it's flaky. Mm. This is the first... Time, we've actually grounded this in some in a massive amount of research and um, uh, and it's just the greatest to me op opportunity to do the real translational part of this body of work and so the idea behind it we enter we developed <clears throat> an interview 
this was a little tricky, to actually capture emotion on a video. And um, we have successfully done that. We get the participants are people, adults who are really good at what they do and are really passionate about it. And they represent a variety of careers because the idea is to put these interviews that we developed and successfully capture passion and can analyze it um, on a, on a um, app so that kids can look up students. Well, I'll start with students can look up with um, to see in terms of career development, what they might be passionate about by viewing these other people who are exuding passion. And they might start with an idea so they can go right to that particular career and watch somebody talk about it like that. Or they might need to just enter and explore. They can do that. There's a whole very complicated website that I can talk about if you like, but for now. Um, and if you look at career de development websites or career-oriented websites, it's nice that you do because the students don't. They are really bored. <laughs> and it's, you know, well, now you work outside and you get in. I actually play some of those when we start up a new lab because they are so dreadful. And nobody thinks about what about capturing, capturing the passion that somebody exudes about what they do. Sure. And so we got it. That's so cool. And so the idea then is to, uh, UCLA is just all over this. And so um, they want to use it for orientation and then throughout have it be part of the career development thing. So throughout a student's career, it's basically a lifelong skill or lifelong tool. So veterans going back into the workforce, mm. um, people retiring, and on and on and on. It's hard not to find an application. And what we want to do is get this really honed here, have UCLA, the founder of this, uh, well, not the founder, but hooked up with us. And um, you see how I said that? You can send that to the administration. We have the highest administrators working with us and uh, and then have it go to other campuses. Beautiful. And then my goal is to have it go to other types of places like veteran centers and and it is we call them passion checks so you could go back through this any time in your life say so, you know this job's getting to be a real uh, whatever and do it then and or again re-entering the workforce or getting out of the workforce or anything in between that's so fantastic. And I appreciate you taking something so intangible, like passion, like you talked about, that is such an ethereal concept or so subjective and creating something so tangible to benefit, yes, current students, but 
benefit people at different stages who might need that reminder or who might need a little bit of extra push to make a change or so to use that bandwidth that you have at this stage of your career to create this and continue building it, it it's been created for a while, it sounds like, but what a what a really meaningful um, project to be invested in. Sounds fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. I'll, I'll pass it to Megan for our next question. It's so much fun. I mean, even just hearing you talk about it, like a, being passionate about a passion project, I mean, how perfect. Well, and it attracts passionate students. I mean, yeah, that's right. And I love the lab. I mean, they come, a lot of them are pre-meds and it's like, this is so cutthroat. I kill myself at this, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, do I really, is this really for me? Right. So they can then look at people who are doctors and watch them. And see what makes them passionate about. I feel like we could have a whole episode just talking about this. Um, and it's a good segue because one of the reasons that we started this podcast really was, I would say, a passion project of just wanting to learn more about the history of our field. There wasn't really any good resources where we could get that. Um, and so the goal really was to create this database where past presidents and key figures in our fields um, could talk about their journeys and their and the fields. Um, and so as you are certainly a key figure in our field, um, could you give us a bit of background on your pathway of in sports psych, um, any significant moments that formed your experience in the field, um, and just really kind of how you got to be where you are? Okay. Um, uh, I'm, thank you very much. And I, and I really want to thank you guys for doing this project. This is enormous. And, um, and I think you're, I don't think, I know you are right. There isn't anything that's really captured the history. Um, and honestly, I've worked with the past presidents on many things. I am one. Um, you know, there's been sometimes some blah 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 back and forth with current <clears throat> past members and the and the past presidents, but they really are, and I hope you have gotten this so well versed in their in what's going on and probably still very interested and really, really committed. We've had people, you know, leave the uh New, 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 new presidents leave the past presidents meeting with like, oh, you know, there's some direct. That's where you can go and lay it on the line. I'm confused. I don't know what to do. You know, blah, blah 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 blah, and everybody just rallies. And that's been the history when I was actively serving, and um, I think it's fantastic. I I tried to initiate this. Um. It, at NASPA when I was president. And unfortunately, for reason, uh, people wanted it, and for stupid reasons, it ended up not really taking hold. And I was so glad to see ASP. And, and the reason I wanted to do it was two things. One, in, back in that day, we often lost more senior members to the organization because they would end up going to something specialized in their stuff and not come back. Mm -hmm. So we wanted a way to include senior members. 
But the other was they have either experienced it or they have more time to deliberate as a group. So things you think, man, I really wish we could spend more time on that. <clears throat> Conference coming up, you know. So uh, you've all sure been there. So um, I think it's just great that you're tapping this group. Oh, well, thank you. Oh, you wanted me, okay, sorry. <laughs> you did ask me a question. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I wrote some stuff down in terms of uh, your question of how did we how did I get where I got today? Um, I want to start with a little context of the time, and I'll do that at sometimes because some of it is so off in terms of what today is about that you'll die laughing. You know, I mean, it's so uh, in the terms of the context. Um, there were three career options for women. Did you know that? We had three. It was, it's a lot, right? <laughs> One was secretary. <laughs> I don't think so. One was nurse. No, no, I don't think so. And one was a teacher. Okay. Let's give that a shot since that's what's left. So that was that big decision. There were no youth sports for girls, none. Mm. And um, I used to play with the boys little league in terms of I came to every practice and I played whatever position somebody didn't show up for. And, you know, at 11, 12, that age group, girls can do that. And there was no problem. The boys thought, you know, I was as good as them and better than some, and just like other boys, et cetera. And um, the only thing was I, I couldn't actually compete and go to the tournaments. And I remember thinking and telling the guys, I said, you know, I can't, apparently I can't. They did not, it was a mystery to them too, which I think is great. You know, because back then the stuff was so stupid. It was like the guys are going, well, yeah, but you always, you know. <laughs> and so I went to the tournaments to watch them. And they were coming up to me going, "This, I really wish you could be playing. Isn't that nice? This is out of an 11, 12-year-old boy's face. And um, so I thought that was terrible, but positive in that sense. I mean, it's crazy that 11-year-olds got that that was stupid, but the adults in the room were like, no, nah, this is this is cool. This, this is, is how things are done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, it was just, even the coach was like, my dad was in the service, and that'll come up again. He was an officer in the Navy, and uh, I love the Navy. I'm a very patriotic person and all that, but I think a bunch of us, we were in Japan at the time and it was all, you know, on a base and all that stuff. And I think most of us just chalked it up to just another dumb Navy rule. Not that they have dumb rules for everybody, but if you're under 12, you don't exist. Sure. Once you get 12, it's like the magic time. And all of a sudden you can do something. 
So we just chalked it up to that. Little did we know that it was kind of a rampant concept at the time. Um, then I, um, because my dad was in the service, uh, we ended up transferred from Japan to the Philadelphia area. Talk about a culture shock. That was American Bandstand. I don't know if you guys ever heard of that. Well, that was right there. Right. And I land from Japan where the latest hot hit was Moody River by Pat Boone. We thought we were all catching up. <laughs> the top <laughs> 10, I don't know where they came from, but nobody heard about it for 40 years here. But anyway, so what I found out that they actually had interscholastic varsity sports for girls. And I thought I died and went to heaven. Hmm. I could not believe it. And I didn't even know about it the first part of the time I was there. So I missed one sport. I just didn't know they had it. And well, it had already started and all that. But anyway, I played field hockey, which is a super Eastern sport. That was the thing at the time. Basketball, which I love because I always played with boys and girls, you know, outside on the courts. And then lacrosse, which was just starting. Girls lacrosse was just starting. And men's lacrosse was a big deal in the Washington, D.C. area and that stuff. But um, not so much in Philadelphia. So uh, I really got to sort of, anyway, I played those and I, I just went bananas. Well, since my third option was teaching, I decided to go to the University of Illinois in physical education because I was a pretty good athlete. And I loved it. I say passionate about sports. So I went and I thought, you know, if this is really dumb and here's this is how you do volleyball and but you know, I wasn't not I would have transferred out. But what happened was first of all, I was with an incredible group of women students because it was the third thing they could do, right? So the attorneys and all those people were there. It was incredible. So that was huge. But they also taught this thing called basic movement, where the closest I can come to it is it's like biomechanics, only you do it visually and teach it you know, that way. So you analyze movement as you're watching it. And then common patterns across sport. You know, you don't learn tennis and then badminton. You learn, okay, what are the mechanics and what is the a, a, a serve? Let's say. Sure. So, um, and when I hear people in sports psych say, well, you should only work with people who are in a sport that you're really familiar with. Well, anytime you know more about something, of course, that's a good thing. But if you're a tennis player and you're really good at that and that's all you know, then I don't know how you do the other stuff. So I think that fact is true. If you actually can analyze movement, that's a whole different trip. Mm. And and unfortunately, I don't know whatever happened with that stuff, but it was a, a terrific thing. And I'll give you an example. I worked a lot with Ken Revisa. And we published together, we did research together, we did, he taught me 
all the applied stuff and all of that, it, it just blew me away when he passed away, along with many, many other people. But um, we were working with a skater, and they, the person was in my rec room at the time, family room at the time. And, you know, just before a competition, we all focus on that trick, and we can't get that trick right. So, okay, we're doing that trick. And so she just couldn't land this thing after the jump. And so uh, she was working with a top, top, probably the top, I won't say that, but top, top coach in skating who helped us with our skating project that we did immensely. We had all the top coaches really helping us. And so I'm watching her and all of a sudden I went, wait a minute. I said, would you walk through that? So we had her walk through the movement so would you do it again, please? And she did it again. One more time. I said, okay. Would you go tomorrow morning and ask Frank to look at your, this part of your routine, or, or the lead up to the jump, this part right here, and see what he says. And I said, I think probably that's the first thing we should probably do. So Ken's looking at me like, okay. So she left and I said, there's no way she can take off appropriately if that's really what she's doing on the ice. She won't be able to jump. Frank called the next day. Oh my God, I can't believe I missed that. La, 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 la. You know, it took him four seconds. He corrected it. She's landing the jump all over. <laughs> Ken says, geez, we could have spent the whole afternoon talking about motive to avoid failure. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think there's a lesson in there. Mm -hmm. You know, it isn't all clinical. It's like, look, mm -hmm. and you're not going to out coach the coach. That's not the point. That's why, would you look here and see what you think? Okay. But, you know, it's it's like, did depression cause the slump? Like there's a family problem or did the slump cause the slump? Right. It's more of a biomechanics problem and a motor learning problem. So anyway, um, I uh, then got a master's in motor learning. And, uh, and I learned a lot. Um, and I love knowing what I learned. I had trouble learning it. It seemed to me very dry at the time. I, I don't know what the current stuff is, but, but part of the problem was there weren't any people involved in it. There were people involved in learning, but it was like, well, what if you learned from an expert and you were doing it with somebody else. What if you, you know, and I kept introducing sort of social psychological factors in the thing. My mentor was ready to kill me. <laughs> so I just, so then I went to the, um, I heard there was a new guy in town and his name was Reiner Marks. And he was at the children's research center in the motor behavior and uh, play 
lab. And so my advisor said, you know, there's this guy over there. I think he's kind of doing what you're talking about. I, I'm not sure, but, you know. So I went over and it was just boom. And I found out he was actually studying children in sport. Boom. And on and on. And I was just so excited. And so... And honestly, he was the brightest guy in the field. I mean, we learned that this time went on. He was just incredible. So anyway, I decided to go ahead and get my PhD, but to get it in the social psychology of motor behavior. What's that? Well, that's what we called ourselves because the concept of sports psychology, we didn't have that yet. So that's what we did and um Car, did you get your undergrad master's and phd all at illinois i did and there was a there was initially some controversy with that except that everything i did was in a totally different arena i was um and when I was doing the physical education thing, I, and, and Illinois had a like a graduate faculty and a other faculty. And so the graduate faculty taught graduate students and the other faculty taught undergraduate. So I had a completely different faculty and then changing from motor learning to, to social psych. That was a whole different gig in the lab. So I really, it was like going to three different places, but it was really happening at Illinois and especially this new thing, social psychology and motor behavior. I do want to say something um, to go back to my undergrad thing for a minute. And it kind of relates to the Passionate People Project and all that stuff. But my very first lecture in physical education was given by... Dr. Phyllis Hill, and everyone loved her. And she gave the first lecture I ever saw, and there in that department, and I went nuts. And she actually was one of the creators of the basic movement stuff. And I thought, okay, I'm going to teach. The thought of teaching gym just I mean, I thought it would be fun for a period of time, but I just couldn't see doing this like for my life. That's what I want to do. I want to teach in college and I want to be like her. I want to teach like that. Well, I didn't get it at the time, but she was just hugely passionate. Mm -hmm. sure. Okay. And so that's what I did. I didn't know what a PhD was. I, you know, it was like, whatever, that's what I'm going to do. And so that's how I traversed at that point. And honestly, I just, I never changed. That was it. And, um, and I really learned a lot actually from the physical education major besides the basic movement. You, there was an emphasis on teaching. So you know, that kind of stuff and um, on and on, but that's what really ignited me. And then I ended up going through the rest of the stuff. 
Now I'll give you a last step here, if that's of interest. And um, that's how I got the first job because it was a little bit grim in that um, there weren't any, <laughs> there were no sports psychology jobs or social psychology and motor behavior jobs. So uh, Reiner and I talked about this, we blah, blah, blah. And, well, it turns out UCLA had a motor learning job and what they were trying to do was um, they had a real cleansing of the college's physical education, recreation, dance, or whatever. Basically, everybody was fired. Mm. And they bought an idea of the scientific study of movement, of uh, movement, basically. And so they were going, they, they survived and got permission to start a kinesiology department, which would be based scientifically based and they sold it successfully which is what we were doing at illinois you know but i mean it just it was, that's why i said that was the hub of action certainly for sports psych so anyway um finally this letter came out and it they wanted a motor learning person so i wrote a letter my application letter as it were and said I can't believe I did this but anyway wouldn't you really rather have a social psychology emotive behavior person <laughs> sometimes you got to educate people about what they really want <laughs> your that is, and this is how it plugs in <laughs> and of course it had to be short and then uh, I also have a background in motor learning but I sure didn't want to be spending a whole lot of time doing that well, I got the interview. <laughs> so, there we are. And that was a something else. But anyway, it 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 worked and um and this was tricky because my husband uh was uh, given a fellowship. He worked for aerospace and they sent him for his PhD at the University of Illinois, and then the idea was to come back to California. But he was trying to work it, and we both felt he was obligated to do that. They did not have an obligation involved, but so, but there weren't any other jobs anyway. So whatever. So, but so anyway, um, that's how I got to UCLA, and the mission was to start the first kinesiology department in the land. People in Canada say they were the first and all that, all that stuff. Somebody can work that out. <laughs> we we advertised all over that we were the first in the U.S. So I that appreciate really long. Is that, should I cut this shorter? No, I was, no, please don't. Okay. That, I think the context is so helpful. And I will say too, the stories that we've been hearing through this podcast and the, the, connections that people make of, I had this interest or I found this passion and this person connected me to this person who then taught me about this, who then opened this door for me. And it's, it's so powerful, the roots that connection has in our field. And I appreciate you sharing your story and where those connections existed for you. Um, 
You've touched on this a little bit, Tara, and I'd love to hear more. So you get to UCLA and you're you're creating the first um, kinesiology program, asterisk, historians can decide, um, but the first kinesiology program and talk to me about the the field. We want to get a snapshot of the field of sports psychology before your presidential service. So how would you describe the field of sports psychology and exercise psychology and also the organization of ASP before you ran for president? So as you're getting to ready to submit your application for president in 1993, fill us in on the field and, and ASP specifically around that time. Okay. Um, um, those could be cut out, right? Sure. Uh, pause for a second. There was a, a lot of interest in social psychology of motor behavior, which finally got changed, but that was actually after I moved to psychology at UCLA because they didn't want something called sport and kinesiology. <laughs> so you can see how we started. But anyway, um, I'm sure you've heard from other people that you've interviewed, who you've interviewed, that it was often very rough in the department if you were in sports psychology. Um, and it was, it's as simple as that. And in terms of, um, yeah, it just was. That's why going to psych ended up to be such a relief and wonderful. That that's that was thriving. Kinesis was surviving, and even as a kinesiology department, you know, when they'd say cuts, it's like, oh, here we go. Mm where they're not going to eliminate psych, right? <laughs> this is just not going to happen. So when you saw that, it was like, gosh, glad I'm not in kinesiology. So it was just, you know, you had a brand new field in a university that historically is the university that went the farthest in terms of prestige and all that in the history of universities in terms of the, the rate of that. So the university is trying to make it big and they did. We're now the major public university in the country. Um, you were in a field that was brand new and, you know, easily eliminated. And then you're on the right-hand side of Neverland being in the area you were in. So it, it th this was not a low-key time. That's how things were. And, and yet I thought that uh, there was a lot going on sports psychology my husband larry used to say you need to go to a back go to a conference because you'd be banged up so much at work and then you go see friends and you aren't you know the moron anyway so um i won't get into that stuff because it's just that it was and i'm so glad i think the field has gotten out of that i hope but people were very enthusiastic about sports psychology and I love the whole idea because there was a time, honestly, where, you know, we took, in Illinois, we took at all the psych, the same number of psych classes as someone in psychology. And on top of that, we took sports psychology, whatever. And, um, but it was neater because you could pick, you didn't have to take all social classes. So you could pick whatever you thought would fill, 
fit into mm. art psychology and inform it in some way. So you could take development. I took, I took motivation and morale and industry because it had to do with motivation. And it was wonderful because the first day I found out, you know, these are people that don't want to work. So what's, what, how does all that work? You know, the guy who teach, was teaching the class said, you know, I asked him, how come you only, how come you only work four days a week? And the guy said, I have to for the money. Otherwise I'd work three. Boom. <laughs> this was kind of the flip side of graduate school and all that. So, you know, it, it, it was fantastic for that kind of thing. And I, and I think the, the early part of ASP and that, you know, people were fired up. And the beginning of ASP, um, and I, 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 you interviewed Jean Williams, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure she told you about New Orleans and all that stuff. She did. (laughs) I mean, that's the kind of stuff we did. And um, people came and they were revved. And I'll come back and say kind of what I did in my presidency to to do that kind of thing. Nothing was as grand as that. That was unbelievable. But there was a time... You know, when all of us uh, grad students, we had a potent group of graduate students, realized we were taking so many psych classes that we could probably switch to psych, which might be better, you know, given there weren't jobs and all of that. And I thought that was one of the reasons I didn't do it. There were other, but one reason was this sports psych stuff, still social psychology and moral behavior, was new. And I wanted to be a pioneer. Mm-hmm. I wanted to work on something that was new. And just like, you know, kinesiology was new. The learning experiences there and dealing with that were phenomenal. You know, you're starting a whole new area, regardless of what happened internally, that's what you were doing. And so the same was to me with this sports psych stuff. And you could really make an impact. You know, B.F. Skinner already landed in psych. They didn't need a whole lot of help over there, but we did. So um, it was pretty exciting. In fact, it was very exciting. So I'll, I'll stop there. Um, did I answer your question? Yes, completely. I, it, the, I can only imagine, but the excitement and that motivation of a group of people who have that similar interest in being a pioneer and being at the forefront in not just already having a passion for what this could be, but actually then putting the effort and the labor into driving it to be what it could be. I, I can only begin to imagine how you use that word energizing and that that's what I feel as you're sharing that story and how um, contagious that energy must have been. Yeah. Wow. Well, and, and it wasn't dragging people. People were ready to do stuff, you know. Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, what stuff are we going to do? And um, 
Can I go back a minute to NASPA? Of course. I think you asked me uh, about post-grad experiences that were important to you, and I'm going to answer part of your question here, the other question. One was, you know, starting a new department. I mean, that was kind of a very big deal, as I said. Um, and then being president of NASPA, actually before tenure. And that was interesting. But anyway. That was a choice, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll give you a, no, it's too, doesn't matter. <laughs> but yeah, it was. And, uh, and then meeting and really working with Penny McCullough, Wallace, Penny McCullough, I think she goes now. Um, and it just, I knew her a bit from grad school, but we didn't know each other well. And I was now president-elect of uh, NASPA. And she was the site director for the conference. We had this deep site director. To give you the context, there was no business manager. There was no money. This was completely like ASP when we started. So NASPA and ASP were the same. Um, if, you, if you blew the conference, the organization did not exist anymore because mm. that was the danger of funding. So every time you ordered a order, if it was like, <laughs> you know, um, the and the conference varied in quality from place to place. What NASPA did was go to universities and that's where the conference was held. And so if the university had a strong program and all of that, the conference was good. If they didn't, the conference was lame and it went from lame to lamer depending on so it was up and down and up and down so um anyway penny and i met she was um the conference site director so we sat down and talked and i said you know i'm scared to death to run the conference because i don't know anything about coffee breaks you know <laughs> and all this stuff what I learned about coffee breaks is you can go out of business with coffee breaks. I had no idea a cup of coffee take, you know, cost $45, you know, I was like, what? So anyway, we went through these issues, I identified them and went through them and just had an incredible session and, and over time. And so one thing we did was we made Penny the official site director. And I was the official president at some whatever level. And we would, to solve this problem of spotty conferences up and down and up and down, the conference would now relate to the executive committee because, and actually the presidential group of, the, of that. So now there's quality control. Doesn't matter where the conference is. What you have is a site director, and they report to President Perk too. But you know, I mean, that's more budget and you know stuff like that. And the site directors train the site directors and all that. But you know, the program 
the theme of the conference, all that comes from the president with the approval of the board. Done. So that just changed the whole nature of the game. Um, we were having problems with, um, oh, uh, the other part to that is I think we started with the president-elect being the conference person mm -hmm. and we changed it to the past president. Why? Several reasons. One, they are the most senior. They've been there the longest. They should be the person with the most knowledge, big time. Two, it's a place that if the president wants to and is wise, they use it as the place for their theme and their goals to play out, right? Mm -hmm. So now we got all that knocked. It's uh, we put the best on the best and the board is involved in the whole thing because, of course, the president presents to the board constantly about the conference and stuff like that. The other is we were having a problem with, we just were getting too many people. And all we had were presentations. And by the way, these presentations were awful. People would put a overhead thing up and scribble on it and all that kind of thing it was just, ugh. but anyway, that's what we had. So we knew we had to go to something like a poster session. Oh, no, I got picked for a poster session. Oh, yuck. I don't want to do that. I'm not coming because I don't want to, you know, on and on. So we decided we needed to package this. But probably after you do this stuff, you should go into marketing, I guess. But anyway, so we didn't call them that. We called them interactive sessions. Do they still call them that? They do, don't they? No, now it, it doesn't matter. Now nobody cares about if they're a poster or not. But then it was a big deal. I'm giving benefit of the doubt on that statement. <laughs> but anyway, so it was the interactive session. And you could have invited interaction sessions. Okay, just like whatever. And we knew we had to have a big dude do this. So Dan Landers, who was a major mover and shaker in the field at the time, was started the first sort of psychophysiology stuff in the field. And he did, his participants were all shooters, either archery or guns or whatever. So there was a lot of stuff that, you know, he could show. So he said, Dan, we need you to push this new thing we're going to call the interactive session and show that people can actually be invited to do an interactive session. And you're the big dude. So we need you to do it. Well, he loved it. And so, and, and you have a whole room, just do your number and nothing will compete with you. So he got out there, all his grad students, Belt, Deb Feltz, all those people, and had guns and all this stuff. And it was Fantastic. So after that, sorry, or not sorry, Chelsea, you get to be in an interactive session. Oh, goody, goody. You know, so that's how we dodge that bullet. And then, you know, now it's just what everybody does and it's wherever it is right now. The other thing, um, <clears throat> and I already mentioned this, that I really needed to 
I felt was get a, a, a past president's council. And we initiated this, and, and I, I told you the reasons that they could do some real deliberating on this and to help keep people in. The past presidents, we did a big dinner to launch it, the whole deal. They loved it. But somebody sort of sandbagged it, and it didn't ever get super developed, which was really too bad. And I was thrilled when John moved that. And if you notice, he used, he built, so used, he built on a lot of ASP stuff, which is fantastic. I mean, I really, I have to hand it to him. So that's that. Any questions about that stuff? Or no, so one thing that I think is really interesting is your presidential trio was Gene Williams, yourself, and Penny, and then followed by Mo, which I think is what an incredible lineup after having eight male, well, seven male presidents and then four female presidents in a row. Um, what made you want to do it, though? Like, why did you decide, like, I want to run for the presidency? Well, just to speak to the three women um, that I dealt with directly on this, um, that that was an asp changing trio and i really mean that um even in terms of um financial gene is fantastic and, and penny is fantastic figuring out how to make money and for example, when I was past president, we met in Williamsburg, and I'll talk about that, why we did that and all that. But <clears throat> it ends up it was a huge moneymaker. Hmm. And the reason was Williamsburg is like a second site. It's not the top places people go. It's the second level that people go. Second level resort area or vacation area so it's cheaper so we decided to keep all the expenses and the rental you know the rooms and all that, the same price as always because if you went to boston which we did you paid thousands of dollars for everybody to have one half of a cookie Okay, where Williamsburg, you could get uh, the food and all that stuff that we did was incredible. And we decided we would just charge the same for two good reasons. One, if you lowered the cost for one conference, then everybody would be complaining if it went back up to the normal, right? We, we all know that one. But the other was to make money. So we actually left there with a profit. They made money. And that's what actually was able to fund whenever we did the task analysis and all that kind of stuff. That funded that stuff. Mm. So again, there was no money. So the conference was it. 
and as I said, most of us were just praying that we didn't sell one too many cups of coffee. Or we'd go, Sorry, folks, this is our last conference. I hope you enjoyed the field. So, um, Zach, <laughs> talk about stress. Anyway, the job was fine. I loved the job, but that part was always tricky. Um, did you ask? Did you ask me why I wanted to be president? Yeah, what motivated you specifically, especially having that background from NASPA? What made you decide to then transition and and run for the presidency of ASP? Okay. First of all, you know I think people I I I I. I wanted to grow a field, okay, and um, and Reiner provided enormous leadership in terms of getting us thinking that way. And I, I'm happy to come back and if you want at some point to talk about the leadership he provided to us to learn things like that. But I really wanted to to do that kind of thing. And let's face it, there are lots of ways you can help the field. You know, you can be the editor of a journal. You can be a reviewer. Um, I'm happy to talk about editors and stuff. Um, I, I, I was on the founding editorial board of JSEP for mm -hmm. 35 years I served on that. I don't like that. I never wanted to be an editor, and I didn't like doing that, but I felt I I should do that for the field. That's the thing I like least, I think. Um, Just can't get enough volunteer hours, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Got a lot of credit for that in kinesiology. <laughs> anyway, you can be on committees. You can do all that stuff, which is great, and I hope people do that chair them and serve and do those things. And I did that. But what I learned from being president of NASPA is you can really move a field. Sure. And I loved being president of NASPA because of that. And I had to turn it down ask, like for five years because of turmoil at home, as it were, in the <laughs> brand new kinesiology department. So anyway, I finally said yes, and I got in there and was fired up to do this. And uh, and we made some, I think, huge progress in lots of ways. For example, when committees, when you assign committees, they were announced at the conference, and then the committee would go home and meet for the first time sometime <laughs> and basically come back the next year with the agenda and goals that the committee should be involved in and stuff like that. Nothing was accomplished beyond that. So now if it's still happening, you get punished by getting up at the crack of dawn and having your first committee meeting at the conference, right? Mm -hmm. When I heard what time it was, I thought, geez, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Shoot me. <laughs> but you get to know the people. You um, get to hash things out. You get to set the goals. You get to do this, that, and the other. And then you leave and you get to work. 
And of course, with email and all that, that can happen. Realize email was just coming in mm. when I was president of ASP. In fact, I remember getting up in the morning and sitting down and all of a sudden I thought, God, it's one o'clock and I haven't done any work yet. Well, I was doing email, right? You know, for the board, the, this guy, that guy. And it took a, like a, a little change to think, yeah, actually you just met with 45 people, but don't. Anyway, so that was a, a, a big reason. And the other was I had been, you know, didn't take rocket science to see that as that uh, uh, sports psych was going very international. Mm. And as someone who is president, you need to keep your organization up to speed, growing, healthy, etc. So what to do? Launch internationality and make that the focus of us. Mm. And nobody else did that. So we were, and it was launched, and it was launched at the Williamsburg Conference. What is Williamsburg and Jamestown nearby? It is basically the birthplace of the United States. So with that platform, the theme carried out, and we were welcoming the world to our birthplace. How great. And we tied in, we had, um, they ate peanut soup, you know, we had the food match some of that and, and did. Uh, we had great food because it was a second tier thing. We were the largest conference that the, that the hotel had ever dealt with. So I can't tell you the stuff they did for us and with us and, I learned more about hotel management, which I wanted to do when I was a high school <laughs> I want to be a hotel manager. <laughs> anyway. You just uh, want to become president of an organization and then you got to do it. That's right. Once is enough. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of doing that part. Um, and we had every, Penny came up with this one. We actually started the night the opening night of the conference. Usually that was kind of a big nothing. And, uh, you know, people came in and then they had orders or whatever and went to bed. We started that night. And the town crier came in from Williamsburg and cried it. There <laughs> gave me the keys, you know, to the town and then something else happened and all of that. Um, so, and then what I was going to say that was Penny's great idea was to have each graduate student greet the people from each country in their own language. Wow. So they were greeted and all that. And, um, um, that's where Marty Ewing, years later, decided to come in with the flags of each country. Right. Which was phenomenal. And then it got canned, and I thought, geez, well, you know, and I guess that was a businessman in 
idea. I'm not, I don't think that's the kind of thing that they should be deciding on. I think that is a uh, leadership. Or it should be the board deciding that. And you may decide to discontinue it because you're lousy with internationals. You don't need to do that anymore. Okay. But if you're not, or it's going down a little bit, use it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, and to, again, to give you context, um, now the other thing I wanted to say is when you said the good things or what was going on, the, the field was very cohesive, very, very cohesive. And I do think that in large part was due to the big social functions that happened mm -hmm. that everybody was involved in. It wasn't like, well, Timbuktu is known for the donut shop, go have a donut. You know, so um, I think we can do better than that. Um, what was the other thing I was going to say about? Oh, we didn't really have, again, this is for the internationality. We didn't have, uh, uh, email was just coming in, as I said before, and not really, not all countries had it, you know. So this internationality thing ended up to be, an effort of the whole organization. So what we did was we had printed nice pamphlets and all that, and everybody going to a conference somewhere else internationally or even within the country, we gave them brochures and they took them and we briefed them so they spoke to it. We ended up with I was trying to think, and I can't remember if it was 20 different countries coming to this first effort or if it was 40. It must be 20. That's incredible. Yeah. No, it was. And then we had these very dramatic things like I got a letter from the president of the um, Sports Psychology Association in um, Armenia. So the person who was the president of the Sports Psychology Pro Society in Armenia wrote and said in a formal letter that they would like to come to the meeting. Fabulous. Well, it turns out they sent the letter after the conference. They didn't find out. Oh, no. So we worked like crazy. No, that's not true. They actually... It was almost when the conference was going to start. Sure. So we got on it and it just did all this stuff to communicate with them. And again, we didn't, we had letter and we had phone. So it turns out I had an Armenian student whose mother spoke Armenian and was from there. And so we had her all lined up to talk on the phone. We did all this stuff. And then she was all set up at night because of the time change and all this. And then we learned that Armenia doesn't have the electricity on all day. <laughs> and it's kind of spotty, which what time of the day it is on. And, you know, that didn't work. And we did, it just, we went through everything. Well, it turns out they did get the letter. How, I do not know. So these three men appeared 
and they came up to and I said, introduce yourself to me when you know you if you get here, you know, and all. So they came up to introduce themselves. And they said, We're the Armenian Society for Sports Psychology. I'm the president. Here's the president. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? I just my mind. We're like, yay. And you know, after that. They came every year and you could see it growing in their country and, and things like that. Um, and that's the other thing about the internationality. Because we so pushed that, and a lot of things came out. That's where the distinguished international speaker comes from. They launched it the night before the conference started. They gave a major speech. Um, and there were just a lot of things in the international committee so they could help pick people and be informed and all that came out of that. Um, but when the conference was over, there was this British student standing in a group of British students. And he said, thank you so much. This is going to be my conference now. This is my conference. And all of the rest of them went, yes, yes. And I'm like, thank God we did it. You know, I said, great, you know, fantastic. And we'll see you. Now, I don't know if he still comes. And the reason is he may be retired. But he has been to every conference since that day. I mean, it really seems like all of the effort that goes into that from the president to make the conference a hit and think about speakers and this outreach for engaging so many international scholars. And then you hear something like that just has to make it feel like it was all worth it. Oh, yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, it's a ton of work, but I can't think of anything more fun than we call that under our stuff with fun as a serious fun, serious fun, because there's a whole achievement factor to sources of enjoyment, of course. So this is the serious one. So Tara, I hear you talk about so many different components, both that motivated you to run for president, but also things that you were doing while you were in that role. So I hear you talking about moving the field forward in a number of different ways, advancing the organization forward through this internationality piece. I hear you talking about the, the committees, making those a little bit more formal, even if it is at sunrise uh, at the conference. Um, but what would you say, reflecting back on your time as president of the organization, what would you say are your main accomplishments? Um, well, I think internationality. Sure. And I also think some of the structural changes like the committee meetings. And, and that turned out to be like we were given, they, they formed a group uh, Glenn Roberts was president. He formed a group of us to past presidents to work on something. And uh, it was due in June. This was the beginning of the year. And we met and we said, let's get this out by January. Then he's got the rest of the year to do it. And I mean, we just pounded it out. Sent it to him and said, okay, you're on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so so they bought a year, half a year more than half a year probably to um, to get this stuff moving. And a lot of that was that task, early task stuff and those kinds of things. Um, 
So, yeah, I think, I think, because you, you do have to deal with the structural things. And a lot of it was easier because we had done it already in um, NASPA, which, which made that work. And I appreciate that, that acknowledgement of the way that we advance this forward is by knowing what we're doing within, right? It's really tough to build that internationality if we don't have those structures in place first, because how do we hold space for people and keep moving forward as an organization in a field without that structure? So I appreciate that labor that you all put in to establish that so that we had somewhere to launch from. Yeah, the worst was I had to go around the first set of meetings at the graphic. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Tara, this was really a stupid idea. <laughs> Now, I, I tried to do something else and it did not work. Oh. And that is um, to do development and get money. And I'd been doing that at UCLA a bit and I thought I, I thought I kind of knew, um, but I couldn't do all that in president. So I, I really got a crack person to do that. Mm -hmm. It was a former student, like Karen Cogan. And uh, I just don't I mean she worked at it and this and that I said you know just skip it because mm. I know um, you don't know I don't really know and um, it's just it's just too early and it's too big to take on with the international and all that so that was a major thing that I hope we could do and I'm delighted that it has subsequently developed I mean it's a, they're doing great uh, last I understood so that's I'm thrilled with that because you just got to get income. Yeah. yeah. A cup of coffee just can't be that important. <laughs> okay, Tara, for this next part, this is one of our favorite parts of the podcast. Um, oh, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> you already know. Could you tell us a story from your time and ask about the conference in the field? Um, any kind of story that you want, something that just brings a smile to your face, maybe uh, invigorate some of this passion for you. Uh, the bonus points aren't real. They don't actually count, but I think we all know that they kind of do. Um, so if you involve other ASK members, we'll uh, award you some fake, not so fake bonus points. Well, I'm wondering if the other ass members want to be divulged. <laughs> you know, we might, we, have have to, a, yeah. we might have to sign. Yes. Because <laughs> this is pretty good, actually. This is uh, kind of a University of Illinois um, classic, let's just say. We had a lot of fun there. We did. We, we did. And we had a lot of fun on the boards. A lot of fun. We had funny people on the boards, mm. like Penny and um, Al Salmella, who's um, um, Canadian, whatever. So, um, so sort of the setup was we were at the Children's Research Center. We were all working under Reiner and other people. Faculty were Reiner Martins, Glenn Roberts. Carl Newell was a student at that point. Um, and other people in motor learning and development were all in this incredibly vibrant lab. Just to show you, give you an example. We had 
somebody come in to talk about statistical power before anybody knew anything about that. And then Carl went out to NASPA and presented statistical power. Hmm. So you're growing the field, you know. So anyway, um, so the setup was we had one main office and a bunch of us were in that. And um, and we had um, two maintenance guys who used to come around. They were the all-night crew. And they'd come around all the time, check with us and check in for a few minutes and die laughing and leave. And, and we called ourselves the co-action group, you know, doing the same thing at the same time, but on different tasks. Well, that's called studying, right? So we were co-action <laughs> forever and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, um, <clears throat> so one night and these people, my colleagues actually stayed as late as they did because to support me and to keep me from getting my head knocked off because we were in the basement of the building and all that because I would stay up really late. So anyway, this one night we put, we uh, cooked up the University of Illinois lab experiment of all time. And <clears throat> So what would happen routinely, we all had lunch together. And because I stayed up so late, I would come into the lab and I learned how to eat a toss salad for breakfast. That was a bit of a challenge, but I did it. So uh, team cohesion. So anyway, so we were the co-action group. We were very close net lab group. And we decided this one night to design the University of Illinois classic experiment. So the pattern in the lab before lunch was all the guys would go into the men's room and all of us would go into the women's room, which was just on the other side of the wall. And then we'd go sit down. Usually we were done, we were there already at the table. Ah, oh, so <laughs> we decided to do motivational study, specifically achievement motivation. And if you remember your early social psychology kind of stuff, classic experiments on high and low need achievers. Is this familiar to anybody anymore? Absolutely. So the high need achiever had a high um, orientation for success and a low need achiever had the desire to avoid failure. So we went into the men with the cooperation of our co-conspirators, the two janitors. And when we told them there were these old guys from the Midwest, <laughs> it was like, what? Yeah, but we really need your help. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> so they had to keep the bathroom locked until the critical time and not locked overnight when we were done in there. So we went in and we set up the three distances in every classic achievement motivation study, right? So we had three distances from the target. And in the in the actual experiments, you know, people either threw darts, they picked which place they wanted to 
shoot from or a ball or something and did a tar target task. So that was the plot. And those who were low need achievers, motive to avoid failure would pick a really far spot because nobody could do that anyway, or a really close spot because then they could be successful, but high need achievers, motivation to achieve success, but pick the most challenging spot, the middle. And that's how you could assess and then see what different achievement levels did on different things, but the target task, all that. So we set up the three markers on the floor. We brought in a stool with a clipboard and a pencil and put all the names on and the distances. And the target was a urinal. Oh, no. <laughs> I felt like I could feel that coming, but I was like, surely not. Surely not. <laughs> no darts or balls in this case. Well, in this case. So anyway, with that, we left. And the janitor locked the janitors locked the door for everybody else. You know, they could set it up with the next group for the morning. And so we're sitting there and the guys come in and they go into the room and we're in the ladies' room. And all of a sudden you hear this ha ah, ah. ha. <laughs> I mean, they just chortled. They were <laughs> laughing their brains out and all of that. And then there was sort of a lull. Then they start laughing. Then it was a lull. They're competing. They're actually doing <laughs> So we ran back to our seats when that was over. And they came out of the bathroom. They were laughing their brains out. And we're sitting there like, what, what's the problem? You know? And there, do you guys, have you heard of Seppo Iso Ahala from Finland? Well, Seppo was, we called him the Flying Finn because he was actually the national champion of Finland. For you know that mountain, I can't think of the name of it, but that ski thing where you'd like ski off the mountain and fly forever and land. Well, he was their champion. He, he was a riot. At first, he couldn't speak any English. So he wasn't so funny, but I'll tell you that watching that kid have to learn what this language barrier was amazing. In Hawaii. Oh, yeah. Turns out he was a riot. But at that time, he could speak English, but so he was at the table. He had no idea what was going on. So these guys all come out. But they are so cracked up. And of course, they're not going to tell us because it's not proper. <laughs> so we sat there and they went, we're trying to figure out who did it. Seppo, was it you? And of course, Seppo's laughing because everybody else is laughing. He has no idea what we did. <laughs> and they went, it's Seppo. Seppo, well, what did you do? You know, and then they said, um, you know, and he didn't know. <laughs> that was perfect. And it wasn't until years, years, years later, Reiner came out to visit me at UCLA. <laughs> I mentioned this. He goes, oh, yeah, do you know about that? I said, yeah. He said, well, how do you know about that? I said, well, you know, no. <laughs> it was you that many years know. later that wow. I finally told him. I said, yep. <laughs> I can't believe you can leave that a secret for so long. I feel like there's no way. 
That's hilarious. Isn't that good? Isn't that fun? That's a good, that's, that might be, that's a good, that's a, that's in the running for a top story. I mean, I, it's, that's a, wow. I just, and I, I have to echo Megan on this one that you kept that under, I think I would have lost it at the table when they came yeah, out. No the way. fact oh, that you no. kept that under wraps. No, we just looked confused and we were happy. They were happy, but you know, whatever. And they weren't mm-hmm. going to talk. So it was like, okay, next topic, you know, Sep, Seppo. <laughs> you did it. Did you? Oh, Seppo did it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was probably 10 years. Wow. And then there's a, Reiner Rodden wrote um, autobiography and in there there's a fleeting mention of an achievement motivation study I love that that's amazing well I don't think there's any good way to transition from that story (laughs) into the next question I kind of just want to honor that um where do you think the field and ASP are going or what might be your guesses if you if you could guess well I think we're not doing the right thing if this becomes a clinical organization. That does not mean you don't include that. Um, and I've seen this actually happen in other countries where that sort of took over and field sort of disappeared actually. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's important that people understand movement especially if they're perform- doing performance stuff. If they're not, well, that's a different story, but they're doing performance things. Um, they really need to understand that. And, um, and not just, well, I skated for 500 years, so I'm an expert in movement. No, they're not. Um, and, I, and again, I... I, I I'm concerned about it going too much clinical. I think students are confused because mm-hmm. it's like, well, I got, well, I'll just get a clinical degree, then I can do everything. Well, then you have you have the problem of what caused the slump. And sort of a classic old story was this guy came to a meeting and he was a clinical psychologist. And I, I will mix this up so it doesn't ever identify anybody but he was working with an olympic level team because they bumped into him and he said he was well they thought he could help them and he wasn't a sports psychologist he knew nothing about sports psychology he met them doing the task they were doing because that's what he did for fun Mm. and he said you know i gave him this depression scale and it was 98% 98% of them were depressed. I said, yeah, I'm sure they were. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Did you give them anything else? <laughs> I mean, you know, what? how many people on a team are depressed? What, 10% kind of like the population or something, somewhere like that? Sure. Whole team. Championship team. <laughs> goofed up. <laughs> so... Um, I think we have to be smart about that. I think that research emphasis also needs to be at the conferences. And I know people come back and say, eh, you know, whatever. Um, and I haven't been able to go for the obvious reasons. Um, just see. But 
I also started thinking about this, just working on this. You know, I'm going to say the negative first. Watching, constantly watching elite athletes talk about their stuff individually is not science. Mm -hmm. There is a role for that in a conference. It certainly draws people. It solves, it, it, does, it buys you some things like that. But that's not science. Unless you make it science. And what I was thinking of, and I don't have this all worked out, and I don't need to because I'm going to tell you and you'll do it. But, you know, we, we do mixed methods. We value idiosyncratic data, in-depth interviews, things like that. They feed structuring interviews. They feed interpretation of interviews. They feed then taking all that and making uh, uh, quantitative things out of it, questionnaire scales, that kind of stuff. So I think if, if that could be set up in some way and get a group that's a moving mover shaker group in research and have their task be and set it up with the, whoever you're actually having inviting to um, use that interview, what th could they, what have they learned from that interview that they could potentially use to initiate some research, to add to their research, to whatever. Because I'm assuming one reason ASP has these people is that practitioners are doing that. Well, let's get the researchers involved too. So something like that. But again, you got to get big guns doing it and things like that um, and actually make a thing of it. Years ago, I was interviewed by Diane Nyad. Diana Nyad. It's Diana, I think, right? I think so. So, but she came to talk to me about youth sport and wanted to know what we had found and all that. And she, she did this because she was going to create a series. And so we were the research kind of thing. And, and um, we spent hours together. And she was really thrilled with this. Now, to tell you how great I was, now she was interviewing all kinds of people, but <laughs> the series didn't go. <laughs> anyway, the point was, she has no background in that kind of stuff. She came for background. I think it's a great segue too. I feel really fortunate to be able to share the space with women that are currently in the field and that have paved the way in the field and being a student myself, I just feel so grateful to be here. So to ask this question and to hear your perspective uh, adds to that gratitude. Um, so what advice do you have for students and new professionals entering into the field now? Well, I think you guys have something going for you that I had going for me. I'm sure Chelsea had going for her, Megan. You're passionate about this stuff, aren't you? Right? Okay. Not yeah. bad. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There you go. What's the other thing? You're doing this. So you're already working in a leadership position. You are already working to move the field forward. You're already doing those things. The rest is detail. Mm. 
Time. Now, think oh, about ways you could do that. How can I move the field? How can I? What can I do that's new and novel and unique? And just to show you the respect you guys have, <clears throat> when I was on the board with ASP, some people did, it turned in just really awful. Uh, applications for presentations. And so then the, you know, well, but they're a big deal, should, probably should have them anyway. And that whole discussion was going on. And well, you know, and finally someone else on the board said, you know, this was right when you guys started having your own conferences, which we fostered. These kids go to these conferences and practice what they're doing so they know what they're doing. How can we have them do all that preparation and come to give a presentation when these other guys who are supposed to be a deal aren't doing it? Mm. Bang, they were rejected. You guys were accepted. And guess what? They didn't send in stuff anymore. They sent in the right stuff. We got some complaints, but it's like, well, and that rationale actually was given to a few that didn't want to hear whatever. <clears throat> so you got it, man. And people will listen to you. Uh, at least that's what the organization has already been about. We don't need to upheave it and do all that stuff. But a mature person coming in, trying to make a difference, trying to help people, trying to move the field forward, and passionate as all get out about it. Thank you. Very well. Passion. Welcome to the field. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to look for you. <laughs> There'll be another. Hopefully, I'm here. Where's the permission? Tara, I, I think you've touched on so much of this, at least. I, I've heard so many things that, and even before this time that we've gotten to spend together in my career in the field so far, hearing your name and, and all you've contributed and all you've done. I'm so excited to hear your answer to this. What do you hope your impact on the field is going to be? <clears throat> well, by the way, I, I love this question because I have a question that I use all the time in interviews. And one is after the whole thing is done, when it's all over, you're retired and you hang up your spurs. <laughs> it's amazing the emotion that elicits. Yeah. Like, you can lay it on me. No. Uh, what would you like to be remembered for? Um, I would like to be known or remembered for being a good pioneer. Mm. You know? And I, and I really mean that. I mean, did you move the field forward? Did you... What did you do to do this and that? And, you know, Reiner, Reiner instilled so much of that. I mean, he never said that, but we ran the first, I do believe for sure, it's, I believe, that it was the first NASPA program ever. And he took us to this historic room on campus for dinner, all the grad students. And he talked about in the in the framework of all this history, 
what his, a historical moment this was and what a big deal this was and what our role in it was. Hmm. And it, you know, it, 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 it's, it explained why you're doing all these and what you learn from doing all these odd jobs you know mine was to pick people up at the airport and then take them back i realized i was spending the dignitaries and guest speakers i, I was spending two hours with the guest speakers <laughs> see ya hank <laughs> you know, it, was just, it was awesome so i think he really conveyed that kind of stuff and he also said something that's kind of personal, but I think it's important to impart on your own students if, if it's true. We were in such an incredible environment. I mean, the sports psych really started there. We had other people, that, but that's where it happened. And we had that lab with all these people coming in with statistical power or content or whatever. And he said, you know, there are very few other people in the field. Oh, that was the other thing. He, he also taught us, he wanted us to, um, we kept asking, can we present now? Can we present now? You know, can we, no, not yet, not yet, not yet. And this was still when people were writing the overheads. And he wanted to wait for a major symposium. And of course, we came in with the slides, the whole nine yards, and did it. And it was a shot heard around the world. People were coming up to, who are you? <laughs> Do you work at the, you know, they didn't had no idea we were students. So he did a lot to actually have you lead things and to make historical moments important. And in the end, he said, when he said this thing about other people don't have this opportunity, it is your job to lead the field. Mm. So you did. And so we're going, oh, who? <laughs> you got to be joking. You know, he said, I mean it. Okay, you know, but I think those moments are important. And I think it helps with our students to tell them that. And because uh, they are they're going to be the leaders. So and I hope I've done my job while I was doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to say really quickly, Tara, what I hear you sharing in that story is that he not only said you need to lead, but he gave you opportunities to lead too, that it wasn't just words right. it was followed no, up with. It, that, exactly, yeah. exactly. That, that, was, that was the importance of doing the presentation when we all got yeah. up there and people were just like, and you know what? We didn't see any more of these scribbles on it. They were gone. So lead by example. You know. mm -hmm. How are you going to stand up and do that after something? And and other people did do that, but we he waited. He waited to do get everybody at their peak, do it, and we kind of graduated. But you know that was. And I owe a lot to this field. I. kept me passionate for a long time. 
Sure. And that's so evident through all of the things that you've shared with us in this interview. This has been such an enjoyable conversation to go from there being three options for women to be in professional fields to the four of us having a conversation about this thing that we're all so passionate about. So thank you for you know everything that you've done uh, for the field and all the things that you've shared with us. Just as one final question, um, is there anything that we haven't asked you about or anything that you feel like is important to share um, while we have you here? Well, do you want to know do you want to know how ASP started from NASPA? I told one of you, oh, do you want me to tell this? Was it you, Chelsea? Do you want me to tell the story where I yelled at the whole e-board? Oh, <laughs> you know, we 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 have heard the story from other perspectives, but are happy to hear your, oh, your did you? side of it, too. Yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah, a few other past presidents have have kind of shared the story too, but we would love to hear your version of the story. I think hearing multiple perspectives is always valuable. I had no idea. Oh, that's great. I don't have to do that then. They've done it. It's fine. I don't know about the yelling part. Maybe if you don't give us the highlight that. Did you hear about the role playing? I don't know if you heard about the role playing. Oh, okay. So there is a little meat here that you have. (laughs) All right, I'm going to tell you because I... I went through this and I just was dying, sort of laughing. Um, This is the historical part, literally, how ASP came out of NASPA. Okay, and you've heard the straight story, I guess. Well, this is behind the scenes. ASP after dark. ASP after dark. (laughs) By the way, I love your ASP answer. I think you guys, you've done a heck of a job with this, but anyway. (laughs) So, um, we had a problem in NASPA. NASPA is Motor Learning, Motor Development, and Sports Psych. And everybody lived happily ever after until they didn't. And the problem was sports psych people, and I'm sure you've heard this from person after person, got uh, nailed because these charlatans were working with athletes and calling themselves sports psychologists and all that so you've you've heard all that kind Mm -hmm. of well this was really bad i mean so bad i had a guy who was wandering all around skaters and i said um excuse me what's your name and you know i said it's it's kind of probing because he was doing everything he shouldn't and he said oh he said I worked for a motivational speaker and I sold his tapes. So I figured if I listened to and sold his tapes, I could be one. Wow. I said, oh, great. (laughs) There was nothing to be able to do. And that's what was wandering around and giving us a really bad name, bad name. So I kept telling the NASPA board, we've got to solve this problem. The sports psychologists are getting killed. Now they have a very strong historical background, which I understand and I respect for not doing that kind of applied stuff. Mm. I got that. But I said, this is getting really critical. And what you could do is just have your sports psych group 
do those, get that stuff rolling for them. And everybody else just did the same stuff. No, no, no. So this went on and on and on. And finally, I wasn't president anymore. Poor uh, Glenn Roberts was. <laughs> and I brought it up again. I didn't bring it up. Now, somebody in motor learning, guy who is the nicest person on the world, in the world, knew him forever, very religious, very soft-spoken. And he decided to share with the group how he had worked with some kids to teach some, that he actually could, he drew on his motor learning and development stuff to help them with their performance. And I said, wait a minute, you did what? And he was so thrilled. And he said, well, you know, I, I, I took the stuff in motor learning and I applied it to that situation and I, you know, and, and they learned from it and they got better. You dared to do that? Mm. The guy goes, well, yes. And, and with that, I nailed it. How dare you? And with that, I keep, I think part of the problem with this, some of the other part of NASPA was they always were thinking clinical, that we were doing clinical things. But I, I couldn't get that organized with them either. So I just berated this guy with the same stuff that we got. Sure. And I'll tell you, the board was mad. You could just see them. And these are my friends. Right? And they're like. And when we finished, I said, stop. I said, I just did a role playing on you. And now you know what we've been telling you and what you've been saying to us. And you know the emotion that it evokes. Mm. And I was like, well, good news is they didn't kill me. And I <laughs> down and all of that. And then I was out of office and it was kind of like just a vanished. So then, uh, well, that's where it ended up. But, but John, so John calls me and he said, look, I want to start this new organization. Of course, he'd already started it. <laughs> but that's, that's John. I didn't. Anyway, he said, and I'm giving you a heads up. I want you to know this. I said, okay, what? He said, if NASPA doesn't get their act together and deal with professional issues, I'm going to start another organization. I said, NASPA will not do that. I have tried everything possible, including being the most obnoxious person you've ever met. Go on with your organization. I will fully support it. I then took out a five-year membership. I went to the first conference as a recent president of NASPA. I uh, was on the first credentialing committee, on and on and on. I stayed with NASPA. I did do that. But and then we got all involved in NASPA as well. So um, that's how NASPA ASP started. I think it's just another incredible story of you specifically. Again, this value of leading, this value of stepping forward, this value of hard conversations and pioneering 
of not just accepting the status quo, not just saying, no, this is how things are, but actually pushing back and saying this isn't okay. And highlighting where there's contradictions or highlighting where there's gaps or highlighting where this is and, and choosing the, what might be more difficult in the moment, but that actually leads to progress rather than just choosing what is comfortable because that's what we do. It's, I mean, especially to your friends too, what a powerful moment to just step up and say, look, this isn't okay. This isn't okay. Um, so thank you for being willing to have that voice and to stand up and to say what you did um, and to start the momentum um, that Dr. Silva and, and all of you were really able to ride to create Aspen and the organization that we know today. It's so powerful. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. Well, Tara, thank you again for joining us today. We so appreciate you, your generosity with your time, your generosity with your stories and, and the energy and the passion to come back to how you started us, the passion you've put into helping the field and, and truly being a pioneer in the field. We are so grateful for you and the time you've spent with us today. Thank you so much. Can I adopt you? <laughs> I'll have to check with my mom, but I'm 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 okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> You can adopt me all you want. Unfortunately, I realize it would have to be as a grandparent. <laughs> Thank you, guys. This is a superb project. I'm so glad you've taken half your life in terms of your time doing this. And geez, uh, it's just great. Thank you so, so, so much. Thank you. Well, we've Absolutely. asked, and Dr. Tara Scanlon has answered. See you next time on Aspen Answered. <laughs>